Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL. New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll hear a bipartisan plea for action on America's critical debt problem from two Capitol Hill veterans, Democrat Tom Kahn and Republican Bill Hoagland. Khan is the longest-serving Democratic House Budget Committee staff director in history. He now teaches budget policy at American University. And Bill Hoagland is the longest-serving Republican Senate uh, Budget Committee staff director in history. Uh, he is now senior vice president of the Bipartisan Policy Center. And they both made multiple appearances on Facing the Future. Recently, they wrote a uh, Newsweek op-ed in which they concluded that the two parties have fundamental disagreements about how to cut the deficit, but neither can do it alone. Both sides must compromise and take painful votes in order to make this happen. Sacred cows will be gored, third rails will be touched, and some people will have to recommend policies that their friends may not like. The two of us have just done so. We'll get into some of those recommendations that their friends may not like. And to help do that, I'll be joined by Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. Tom, Bill, Tori, and Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, we got a full house today. Well, uh, Tom and Bill, I won't ask if your friends are still talking to you. Uh, we are, by the way. Um, but let's get into some of those hard choices that you described in your op-ed that might put you at odds with some of your former colleagues on the Hill. Uh, Tom, the, the op-ed begins with a brief assessment of the budget outlook. And I think probably everybody on this uh, panel and probably listening to this uh, show understand that there are some deep problems, but just, you know, tee us up here. Why is it that, uh, that we really do meet, need to make some progress on the long-term budget outlook? Well, Bob, first of all, thank you so much for in inviting us. It's, it's a pleasure to be back. And it's always a pleasure to be with my friend, Bill Hoagland, who is still talking to me. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think your audience understands that, that the, uh, the, the deficit in debt is um, on a dangerous long-term trajectory. And um, uh, already the debt as a percentage of GDP is equal to the size of our economy, which is at a historic high. Um, and it's 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 um, it's it's shooting into worse directions in the next ten years, next twenty years, next thirty years. Um, the debt ceiling deal, of which there was so much um, attention, barely made a nick in the uh, in the debt. Um, and the reality is, because of the retirement of the baby boom generation, Medicare and inflation, healthcare costs, uh, Medicare costs are, are and Medicaid costs are escalating. Um, as well as Social Security because of the retirement of the baby boomer. Um, and um, people ask me all the time, how long can this continue? When, when is the crisis going to hit? And the short answer is we don't know. But sadly and, and alarmingly, when it does hit, it'll really be too late, which is why this is really the time 
to start addressing it. You know, uh, Bill, we were uh, part of a bipartisan policy center debt reduction task force back in 2010, shared by chaired by Alice Rivlin and uh, your former boss, Pete Domenici, both sadly uh, no longer with us. And we we certainly could use their leadership now. But but that task force recommended many hard choices. And at the same time, of course, the Simpson Bowles uh, Commission was meeting. Does it seem to you that 13 years ago when when those commissions were were meeting, that there was more of an acknowledgement that both parties needed to make some serious compromises uh, if you were going to get anything seriously done? Oh, again, thank you, Bob, uh, for inviting Tom and I to be on your show here this morning. And good to see Tori and Steve. Um, it's a good question. Um, 20 years ago, I think there was a more of an attention being paid to uh, the level of debt and deficits that was accumulating. Uh, all I can say is that I think uh, there has been a reduction in attention paid because maybe many of us budgeteers have claimed uh, yelled uh, too loud, too much, too long, and nothing technically has happened. As Tom said, uh, when it does happen, it will be too late. So uh, to the extent that uh, uh, the economy is growing, uh, unemployment is low, obviously inflation is higher than people want, uh, uh, people are still buying our debt, uh, that may or may change going into the future. It's hard to convince the average citizen out there that this is a problem. Uh, and I think that's been the biggest hang up uh, going forward. And then I guess we did have uh, new administrations, uh, previous administration that uh, basically uh, ignored debt and deficits. Um, I can be critical, even though I'm of that, technically of that party. Uh, and then we have uh, the new administration that has been uh, up front in, in collusion, so to speak, with the <laughs> Congress has said take the Medicare and Social Security issues off the table uh, because they're not technically part of the problem. And then you're not going to get tax increases uh, right now out of a Republican. Uh, so as a consequence, uh, we are kind of in a stalemate here uh, relative to many years ago when there was when I would argue there was leadership on both sides of the aisle, beginning with it. Let's go back. Uh, Senator President Clinton was willing to focus on debt and deficits. Uh, our friend Leon Panetta and others, uh, um, even uh, to some extent, I would argue the Bush administration, though they people have been critical of it, were interested in trying to stabilize the level of debt. So, it, yes, I think, um, not filibustering your question, Bob, but the long story short is I I think we have a much different uh, challenge ahead uh, as to convincing the American public and their elected officials that this is an issue that should be addressed. Well, I'm going to defer to Tori here in a second, but I just just on the on the op ed, I mean, you put forth the two of you just floated some ideas on Social Security, Medicare, defense uh, revenues. And I, I want to get into some of those. But uh, but first, Tori, uh, let me bring you into the conversation. Sure. I wanted to sort of ask that similar question, but in a little bit different way. Um, 
Uh, so uh, Mitch McConnell, senator from Kentucky, who is the Republican minority leader right now, but has been the majority leader in the Senate. Uh, one of the things that he's always one of his his key aspects of his playbook for getting things done is to manufacture a crisis and establish a deadline, because in his mind, that's the only way that he can get the Senate to come together and, and move forward. Um, I, I think we have a crisis. Uh, maybe it's not staring us you know, tomorrow. It's not you know, next month or even at the end of the year. We have a crisis. Uh, we have a deadline. There seems to be some debate about when that deadline is. What else in your mind is a successful element for getting a deal done? For example, is it a divided Congress? Is it a united Congress? Is it an aspect where uh, the government leads and the people follow? Or is it that the people are ahead of Congress in saying that you need to address this problem? Is it in an election year? Is it in after an election year? Is it before an election year? What are sort of what you see as the common elements aside from crisis and deadline that sort of create a successful environment for a deal? Yeah, let me take a stab at that. Um, um, and and as um, I, I have my scars, uh, of which I'm very um, proud, or, or maybe I'm not so proud, Simpson Bowles, the Super Committee, and the Biden budget negotiations. And Bill was involved in a number of those as well. Uh, and sadly, all of them failed. Um, they failed for, I think, fundamentally the same reason, which is that um, the only way to reduce the deficit is to cut spending and raise taxes. And um, I've never, I mean, we've all followed politics for a long time. I've, I've never heard of a, um, a politician who has run successfully on the campaign. I'm going to cut your benefits. I'm going to raise your taxes. Please vote for me. Um, those are usually losing lines rather than winning ones. Um, but I do think that, uh, to your point, um, Tori, that a divided government actually, I think, um, creates better conditions because these are tough choices. These are painful choices, frankly, and they're trade-offs. And um, having political cover so that you have both parties vested in it, I think, makes a big difference. Um, uh, and then, as you said before, crisis. You know, it's unfortunate that the politicians do not want to make tough choices, and they delay and they delay and they obfuscate until they hit the wall. Um, and I, sadly, I think that 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 is the dilemma that we're facing. I think, uh, Tori, ec excellent question. And I toyed with this uh, in my own mind as to what uh, what is required here. And I come back uh, to an old uh, an article that was written many years ago that there are two ways we get things done in this country. Unfortunately, one is through a crisis, as you indicated, and the other is through leadership. And the lack of leadership on this issue, I think, has been paramount over the last few years. Um, and what I fear more than anything else is that we're talking, as Tom is talking about, what are those big issues that we have to deal with if we're going to confront this long term? Let's be honest. It are These are difficult issues. Social Security, Medicare, taxes. If you cannot convince the American public that there should be some changes in those programs that impact them directly, they're not going to feed that into their elected official to move forward. And the elected official is not going to push them. And as a consequence, nothing happens. We end up in the crisis situation. So that lack of leadership is critical here, I think, at the top level to convince the American public 
this is an issue that should be addressed. And unfortunately, not going to like it. There are sacrifices that have to be made on both sides. But if you are concerned about the future of this country, your children, your grandchildren, you've got to be focusing on this long term. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about commissions and grand bargains and, you know, how do you, how do you get this done? And, you know, I, we, I think we've all seen numerous commissions come and go and the problem is still here. So, you know, what are your thoughts on maybe taking a slightly different tact? And that is, you know, instead of trying to, to do everything at once, try to do a little bit at a time and sort of bite, bite, I'll take a small bite of the problem and build some, you know, political trust and some bipartisanship. In other words, have both parties sit down and say, okay, you know, let's see what we can agree on, as opposed to finding all the things we disagree on or trying to force an agreement on everything. Is there some way to, okay, Republicans, what one tax would you be willing to support? And Democrats, what one spending cut would you be willing to support? And try to try to take it a bite at a time as opposed to, a, 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 you know, the whole enchilada. Well, I, I go back to something Bill said, which I think is really important. Um, it's critical, I think, to build a consensus of, among the public uh, for the need to do this, because, um, you know, nat- yeah, and it's a good question, Steve. I mean, naturally, a, you know, a smaller bite is easier than a bigger bite because the pain is less. Um, but you need to develop the political will. Leadership is critical, but you need followers. And and followers need to understand that there is a real problem and that something has to happen. And I'm I'm sorry to say we are we don't have the leadership and we don't have followers um, right now. And, and you know the irony is I I think our leaders do understand the problem, but frankly there is no political upside right now to doing anything about it. I mean that's just that's to the contrary. There's a political upside in, in demagoguing the issue. Um, and, um, and, you know, that's the, we are where we are right now. I could make the argument, it seems, Steve, that uh, what we just saw with the current debate we went through in raising the debt limit, they did just what you said. They basically did a little bit and claimed that they accomplished a great deal. And as we know that, uh, both by what Tom and I put in our op-ed, as well as what CBO came out with, we're <laughs> Basically, we reduced the debt, the total debt to GDP, uh, not just the debt held by the public, uh, by less than a, a trillion dollars, I guess, about over the next next uh, 10 years or through the 33. We really didn't do anything. And uh, I think that's my reluctance to say, take a little step at a time. We've been taking little steps at a time, and it hasn't addressed the real issue long term. Maybe one of the uh, problems with the little steps is that they're all taken on discretionary spending, which is only about a third of the budget. And uh, even if you took big steps on (laughs) discretionary spending, the dynamic of the budget is such that if you first go into it by saying Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid are off the table and revenues are off the table, uh, by definition, you're you're looking at an incremental uh, solution. And that's really the uh, the gist, the substantive gist of your op-ed was really putting forward a couple of options on Medicare, uh, Social Security, and and revenues. Uh, I just so I wanted to just 
let our listeners know uh, kind of what you were getting at there. Tom, you, you had a couple of uh, Social Security suggestions. Uh, what were they? Yeah, well, let me make one, make one point uh, before I address your, your question, Bob, which is a great one. Um, within days after the Congress passed the debt ceiling bill, uh, cutting the deficit by $1 trillion, um, they started to move on a new tax cut, which will also raise the deficit by $1 trillion. So the very good that they did in cutting the deficit, they are now undoing only a few days later. Um, there's a little bit of political whipsaw there. Um, in terms of... Um, uh, 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 long-term solutions and, and going after the cost drivers. Um, we included um, over a very, very long-term and a very gradual process raising the um, age of retirement for Social Security um, because when Social Security was created, um, the life expectancy was much shorter. Um, now people are living longer and they're working longer. And so the notion that you can retire um, with full benefits at 65 is really obsolete. Um, I would just say as a caveat, there are people who are in manual labor who do have to retire um, at an earlier age. And I think you, one needs to make some provisions there. Um, but for people like us that are sitting at our desk, I, I think it's very different. That's number one. Secondly, um, the um, uh, inflation adjustment for Social Security does not really over overstates the, uh, the price that most seniors face uh, in purchasing consumer goods and and um, and purchasing medicine and 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 the the other uh, costs that they have to bear, and so simply adjusting that rate, the CPI, uh, the Consumer Price Index, will save many many billions of dollars. Um, so those are two examples on on Social Security. Um, we also mentioned Medicare. We can get into that if you like. Yeah, I think I'll turn to Bill for Medicare. Uh, um, just uh, briefly, what, you had a couple of suggestions on Medicare, which, of course, is the more difficult problem than Social Security. Uh, yeah, I, first of all, let me just say I agree with Tom. I, I think you have to maintain an early retirement Social Security benefit. There just are situations out there in which those people still at age 60, but you can actuarially adjust the, the, those two going forward. Yes, Medicare. Medicare is a problem. Um, as all of you know, this is probably the more difficult aspect of policy, given that about fifty uh, percent of all uh, of all healthcare expenditures in this country are public expenditures. We want to maintain access, and we want to maintain quality, and we want to reduce the cost. That this will get me in trouble with my friends on the left, but I, some form of something like what. Uh, uh, Speaker Ryan and others proposed many years ago what we call premium support would be a good way of putting some competition back in. We now have about half of the Medicare recipients out there in something called Medicare Advantage. When Tom and I and uh, some of you, I think uh, Tori and Steve were involved in putting this program together back in the uh, back in the earlier years, we thought Medicare Advantage was going to create competition and lower the cost of health care. It has worked quite the opposite. And as a consequence, I think we have to, and this is really challenging, is to go in and refocus the whole Medicare program. Anybody that's had to go through applying for Medicare knows how complicated it is. And one of my, one of my hopes are, and we are working, a lot of us are looking at this, is some form of combining Part A and Part B and all these various parts into one program, simplify it and make it 
traditional Medicare competitive with Medicare Advantage in such a way as to reduce costs. But it, let's be clear, this is a tough one um, in terms of uh, relative, quite frankly, relative to Social Security. This is a harder one to, to adjust. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Capitol Hill budget veterans Tom Kahn and Bill Hoagland about a recent Newsweek op-ed they wrote called A Bipartisan Plea for Action on America's Critical Debt Problem. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Capitol Hill budget veterans Tom Kahn and Bill Hoagland about their recent Newsweek op-ed, Bipartisan Plea for Action on America's Critical Debt Problem. Bill, before we took the break, we were talking about some hard choices on some of the major programs like Medicare and Social Security. Uh, Defense is um, half of all discretionary spending, which makes it about 15 percent of the budget or so, uh, somewhere around there. And uh, the Government Accountability Office is always saying that the Pentagon budget is impossible to audit. So there probably are some savings there. When you uh, wrote the op-ed and you think about potential budget savings, uh, what are the the potential uh, savings that come to mind from the defense spending? Well, first of all, it's a very difficult question in this uh, geopolitical situation we have find ourselves in today, particularly with Russia and Ukraine and China and Taiwan. We want to maintain our security forces as best we can. Um, But I agree. Uh, That five-sided building across the river over here is one that is a bureaucracy that needs to be reformed, whether it's uh, particularly as it relates from my my perspective in the procurement of uh, uh, military uh, equipment. Uh, we have five, six major contractors. We don't have the competition there that we used to have many years ago. Second of all, I think we can be looking at some of the issues surrounding uh, personnel. Uh, uh, we talked a little bit about Medicare. Well, there's also uh, uh, TRICARE, healthcare that provides uh, generous benefits. So I think we can look at those issues. And then Tom and uh, made a, a, I'll give Tom credit for this. We moved into a new technology world in war fight. We don't, we don't have to pay drones, uh, military retirement or, or, <laughs> or medical benefits. And we should be looking at whether or not uh, there are ways of, uh, with the technology out there, of reducing the amount of both uh, exposure, first of all, to our fighting forces, but also uh, to our budget by uh, readjusting our uh, expenditures in those areas of technology that will uh, benefit our national security going forward. Tom, the other side of the ledger is revenues. Um, You can cut spending or raise revenues to close the gap. Um, I mean, we've already talked about the fact that it's very difficult in this environment to talk about Revenues, but what are some of the things that uh, that you thought of for this op-ed? Well, uh, some of them are easy and most of them are hard. I mean, frankly, I think the, the straightforward ones are that, um, and it doesn't generate as much revenue as we would like. However, um, when you think about the fact that the wealthiest 400 families in the country have an average tax rate of 8%, um, that's lower than somebody working at a Ford plant or CVS. 
Um, I think people see that and they don't think that's fair. Um, I think Americans are willing to pay their fair share as long as it is equitable. Um, unfortunately, we have seen in the last 20 years um, a gross disproportionate gap between the middle class and the people at the top. Uh, and I think that there's plenty of opportunity um, in terms of raising taxes on, on the wealthiest, but it can't stop there. Um, somewhere there's been some general understanding that we cannot tax people whose incomes are below $400,000. Look, if we are going to keep the promises that we've made to seniors and to others, uh, particularly to seniors on Medicare and Social Security, we just have to find a way to pay for it. And that means people are going to have to pay higher taxes. Um, that means income tax. There are other forms of tax. You know, to look at VAT, national sales tax. Uh, nobody likes to pay higher taxes, especially if they don't think that they that others are are paying their what what they should. Yeah, and it seems that there is a political trade off here. That it's unrealistic to think that there's going to be a revenue increase without spending cuts. It's also very difficult to imagine serious spending cuts without some revenue increases as well, if there's going to be a politically saleable deal. Um, Tori? Uh, I want to go back to a discussion at about 30,000 feet. Um, Tom, you were a Democrat who used to work for some very high-ranking members in the House. Uh, Bill, you're a Republican who used uh, from who worked in the Senate, working some very high-profile, very powerful senators. Um, today, in the private sector, you two work really well together. You come from different ideological backgrounds, yet you come together again and again and again to remind both the public and you know lawmakers, hey, we need to get together, and hey, here are some ideas for you. In other words, you guys can come to some agreement on what needs to be done. We, we put some specifics into your op-ed. Did you always work this well together or is this something that sort of evolved now that you're no longer working for members of Congress and have constituencies that you that you need to worry about? That, you know, there's always this myth on Capitol Hill that, hey, if we just sent all the members home and let the staff get together, the staff could figure this out in a matter of a couple of days, get the bill written and get it passed. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, this this bipartisanship that you guys, you know, you do so well, you conduct so well uh, in the private sector. Was this something that that you also adhered to when you were you know, working on Congress and working in Congress and basically had a vote you could influence? <clears throat> you, you know, Bill and I have always said, I, I've always had and, and I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, such warm regard and respect for Bill, who in my mind is the model of somebody in public service. Um, and for our entire career, which goes back um, on the budget, it goes back more than 30, 35 years. Um, I think Bill and I have had a, a phenomenal relationship of, of trust uh, and working together. And I, I remember back in 1997 when we got together and our bosses got together, uh, Pete Domenici, chairman of the budget committee, John Spratt, the top Democrat on the House Budget Committee. We sat down and over a period of months, we hammered out a bipartisan deal that um, everybody had to give, but ultimately it generated uh, four years of surpluses. However, I will say that it, it's a lot easier to agree when you don't have bosses. Um, if I were to have <laughs> written that article today, I think I would be sending out my resumes tomorrow. <laughs> so um, it, let, let, let me just say, Tori, I think uh, Tom and Tom and I've had a good working relationship over the years, even when we were in. And uh, let's be fair, Tom, uh, we've had our differences of opinion, not in terms not in terms of the overall goal, 
but in terms of the principles under uh, the specifics underneath it. As an example, I could argue with Tom right now that I agree we should have more revenues, but I'm not sure I would necessarily go to the rates. I would go to closing some of the loopholes. We would have that argument, but at least we were in agreement that there should be additional revenues. And so, but yeah, I, I, we had good relationship. We worked together. Uh, uh, we One thing I will always say, we respected the fact that we, Tom and I, did not have the certificate of election on the wall there. Those members are the ones who made the final decisions. And those members, I think, uh, Tom, I could argue that uh, Chairman Spratt and Chairman Domenici respected each other and worked together. It made it easier for us also. And I don't see that up there today where the uh, uh, Mr. Uh, chairman of the budget committee today, Mr. Whitehouse and uh, Arrington in his house, I don't see that they're even having d- discussions. And, and unless you don't have those discussions, uh, you're not going to make any progress on this critical issue. Yeah, it's hard to trust somebody when you're the person across the table, you're calling each other names. Yeah. Steve. So I want to I want to go back to the tax issue because, uh, you know, both <laughs> Tom and Bill mentioned that. So Good. Good. Do, do a little uh, round. Let's roll. let's inject some disagreement here in this <laughs> little round robin. But yeah. So one of the proposals in your op ed was the uh, the taxable maximum. So Social Security taxes only go up to your first hundred and sixty thousand and then the, the tax doesn't apply. Uh, now, that's not true for Medicare. Medicare applies to all wages. But so one of the proposals was to raise or eliminate the the, the taxable maximum. Um, and then, Bill, you mentioned the, the, the difference between you know rates versus broaden, lower the rates and broaden the base was sort of an old ma- mantra going back to uh, President Reagan. But so you have this issue of, of what are the trade-offs? Because, I mean, if you applied the payroll tax, which is, you know, Medicare and Social Security combines about 15%. If the, the 2017 tax cuts expire, you're talking about a top rate of about 40%. So you add the Medicare tax and Social Security tax on top of the income tax, and you're getting you know 55% federal tax rate, marginal tax rates. You know, is there one, is there a political economic upper limit on how high the top marginal rate should be? And you know, politically, you know, we've had a big debate about SALT, the state and local tax deduction. And that's one of the things that sort of is a way to broaden the base, but it, but it tends to have a, a political divide because of the difference in state taxes uh, in the red states versus the blue states. So, you know, is, is there a way to thread the needle in terms of defining what a top rate is, what top rate is reasonable? And then how do you go about broadening the base uh, given, a, given a top rate that everybody could agree on? I don't have a magic number for what the top rate is, although I, I would say that there's the top rate and then there's the effective rate, um, because the top rate is not actually uh, what people usually pay. Um, and by the way, there, there's sort of another part of, of the revenue picture that we haven't even talked about, um, which is corporations. Um, and um, um, we we did have a corporate tax reform. I do think that uh, we, you know, with record profits, the corporations have have um, enjoyed. I think there's, there's certainly an opportunity for generating more revenue uh, from corporations as well. Um, you know, I don't have a, a, a terrific answer to your question, Steve, but I think the reality is that um, rates should go up, but I think we ought, ought to close some loopholes too. And there clearly are, um, you know, there are the easy ones like carried interest, um, but there are others like salt, which are more painful. And, you know, look, look at the blowback um, when, when Congress went after that. Um, among Democrats, by the way, who tend to be people who, who support tax increases, ironically. 
I just uh, just say that again. Uh, I think uh, I think the effective rate is important here. And from my perspective, when I look at uh, and I realize this, and and Steve, I consider you to be a tax expert, so I'm not going to try to impress you. But I do think that we have a, about 1.9, according to CBO's estimate, 1.9 trillion dollars tax expenditures. Now, admittedly, some of those are things that uh, be hard to do away. But give me a break. There's got to be a way of eliminating some of these credits and deductions that are just completely out of hand in this uh, in this tax code and make it and by the way, make it more complicated for the average citizen out there. And so I'm looking at uh, taking, as you said, Steve, taking going back the old fashioned way of looking at broadening the base without having to raise the rates. Yeah, and I think if you look at either the. Rivlin Dominici plan or the uh, Simpson Bowles. I mean, some of the more comprehensive uh, deficit reduction plans over the years have have focused on tax expenditures on the revenue side. Uh, you know, rather than just simply raising rates on the existing system. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Capitol Hill budget veterans Tom Kahn and Bill Hoagland about their recent Newsweek op-ed called A Bipartisan Plea for Action on America's Critical Debt Problem. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking about some upcoming budget issues with uh, our guest budget uh, veterans, Tom Kahn and Bill Hoagland. Uh, all right. So turning to the future here, not not the long term future, but the short term future, the debt deal was done. The debt limit has been raised. And one of the goals of the debt ceiling bill was to avoid a shutdown uh, in the fall because we're, Congress now has to turn its attention to passing the 12 annual appropriation bills before the end of the fiscal year on September 30th to avoid uh, some sort of a, a shutdown. The, uh, it turns out that that's not going to be quite as easy as it looks. Um, Bill, I'm going to turn to you first. You were uh, uh, appropriations uh, aide for Bill Frist when he was Senate Majority Leader. So we'll turn to you as our appropriations expert here. Um, what are the chances that Congress is going to be able to pass the appropriation bills? And what happens if they don't? Well, first of all, I think that they still will pass uh, the appropriation bills, particularly in the Senate. The Senate will uh, abide by the agreement in terms of the numbers there. And uh, they'll, if the House, and we wait and see if the House can pass their lower levels uh, that uh, uh, they have put forward, uh, obviously there will be a conference. And now the conference will have to negotiate between the higher Senate and the lower House. Uh, but uh, I want to wait and see if the House can even pass appropriation bills. Um, as a consequence, I am one of those pessimists who believes that uh, we will have a continuing resolution. Uh, I don't think it benefits either Republican or Democrats one year out from the presidential and congressional elections to have a government shutdown. And more importantly, given the provisions that were written into this, this latest agreement, there are incentives to get these things done or else there will be a 1% reduction from the 23 level. 
And uh, that just turns out to be, an, uh, to your listeners, don't get in the weeds here too far, but on the face of it, it means that defense would be lower than what the agreement was, and non-defense would be higher. That seems like a strange set of incentives that and it, that uh, they don't that Republicans don't want to have ha- happen, and therefore will be encouraging them to get their legislation done. But I think we are folk. Uh, we're going to have a difficult fall, and maybe we will go through a government shutdown. I always get in trouble when I say this. I'll take a government shutdown any day over a government default. Uh, I think the two are much different, but I think it gets confusing to the American public. But uh, we will end up, uh, I think we will eventually get to the appropriations, but it is going to be a a real difficult fall. And there's something funny about sequestration. I mean, I I know it gets really into the weeds, so I don't want to get too far. But I mean, that continuing resolution, which they often do when they don't pass all the bills, if they put in something where if there is a continuing resolution for, you know, into January, that there would be this automatic cut, I guess, uh, it called sequestration that would happen in April. So that's that's the incentive. Is that? That's the incentive I see is that, yes, there'll be a cut, but that they then they have until April to fix it, which I think does provide an opportunity to get something done. Um, uh, Tom, you, you mentioned it before. I want to bring it up again, but I mean, we, we, we're going to have a pretty soon a, uh, a tax cut bill, uh, which seems a little bit uh, incongruous after a huge knockdown drag out fight over uh, whether to raise the debt ceiling. Um, do you think that there is uh, some possibility of putting together some sort of tax package that would have any possibility of clearing both the House and the Senate? Well, you know, the, the fact, the irony is that um, many of the provisions in this tax bill, their, their business tax cuts, um, not all of them, but at least some of them actually have bipartisan appeal. Um, and um, they're expiring provisions, many of them. And so there, there's always um, pressure to to extend them. Frankly, I think that uh, if they do want to extend them, and by the way, the, the way the tax bill is, is written using sunsets, um, uh, it, it, it masks the actual cost of the bill. Um, but, you know, they should put offsets into it. And there are offsets, but frankly, they're not realistic ones because they're the same ones that Republicans tried to use to pass the uh, debt ceiling and, and, and those were, were dead on arrival. Um, but you ought to pay for it. Um, and um, and so you've got this one trillion dollar tax cut coming. And then on top of that, you have the Bush tax, excuse me, the uh, Trump tax cuts, which are two trillion dollars. And those are coming soon as well. Um, that's three trillion dollars. Um, but, you know, to be candid and to be to be fair, there are a number of provisions in the Trump tax cuts, which actually have a lot of bipartisan appeal as well. Um, but gee whiz, you know, if if we're going to pass tax cuts, let's figure out a way to pay for them. Um, and there are plenty of ways in the tax code um, and spending as well um, where we, we can find offsets for it. Um, um, de- politicians like to spend money. And they also like to cut taxes on both sides of the aisle. Danger zone, Tori. No, I'm just I, that that makes me wonder about the fate of the. So you know, we've talked many times on this program and also today about the expiration of the the Trump tax cuts, which largely hit individuals. You know, that expire in 2025. If you look to past experience with the Bush tax cuts that were passed in 2000 that expired in 2010. 
what we did there is we sort of, we extended them one year at a time for a couple of years until everybody could get on the, the same page and, and come up with this, this big deal that sort of wrapped everything up together, extended most of the tax cuts, but not all of them, especially those on, on higher income individuals. I'm wondering if that's what's going to happen this time around. You know, everybody's pointing to 2025 as being this big year, but going back to our original conversation about the need to create this big crisis and a backdrop, um, and also the need to have some lollipops along with, you know, the the medicine. Uh, I'm wondering if what we see in 2025 is one or two years of just extending the the tax cuts, the Trump tax cuts, you know, one one year at a time, because also it's easier to offset a smaller amount of money until you create an environment where you've got Social Security, the pressure to reform Social Security, the pressure to reform Medicare, along with the pressure to, you know, do something about the the, the tax cuts that have sort of been rolling along for a year and a year at a time, whether all of those, you know, you mix those up, stir them up in a pot, that creates the crisis in the backdrop the deadline necessary for a grand bargain. Thoughts? I, Dory, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I believe that we should consider also the fact that that trust fund or Social Security, as you said, is uh, deplete by 2033. Uh, HI trust fund deplete even earlier uh, in combination with uh, tax ex- tax cuts expiring in 25. The perfect storm is there for some what we were talking about earlier. I don't I don't like the term grand bargain, but it is something there that allows us to look both on the tax side as well as the spending side and to extend them on a one year basis. I would also simply say it's obvious, I guess, and should be stated that a lot of this is predicated upon an outcome of a congressional and a presidential election next year as to what impact that would have on all of this that we've t- talked about. Very true. Bob, can I squeeze in one more question here? Sure. So this one I want to direct to Tom. Um, Tom, uh, one of the things, so you're a, a professor at American University. You teach class on on policy, public policy. Um, one of the things that your students do, I think, every semester is they go through Concord Coalition's uh, policy and priorities exercise, where your students actually get you know some time in class to learn about the federal budget, but then also go through an exercise of picking and choosing the options, you know, on the revenue side, on the spending side, a bunch of different options to try and create some savings um, in the budget. I know that we've talked today about all the tough choices and how hard it is and the lack of leadership it is to make these tough choices. I'm wondering what you're seeing in your class with the, you know, the college age students that you see and their ability to make some of the tough changes, tough choices. And does that give you any hope about the future? Well, it's a, it's a good question, but uh, I, I do want to uh, give a real plug to Concord Coalition for um um, sponsoring and putting that program together because it is really a, truly a highlight of the semester for all the students. Um, they love doing it and they, they really enjoy it and they learn a lot from it. Um, you know, uh, it's interesting because um, each we, we break the class into groups of five and each group is responsible for figuring out what they want to do about the deficit. And they're given a whole bunch of choices, a whole bunch of different spending programs um, and revenue. Um, and invariably, not only do they not balance the budget, but they end up with huge surpluses. And then at the end, we, uh, we ask them, we say, um, do, you, um, do you think you're going to get reelected next year? And almost universally, they say, no, the voters will never re- put us back in office. Um, you know, they're willing to make the tough choices, um, but I think they're not so tough. For example, they're willing to cut Medicare and Social Security because I think they see those programs 
is so far off that it doesn't affect them. But when you get to things like student loans, something which is close to their heart, no, 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 don't touch that. <laughs> so, you know, sadly, you, you see some of the same phenomenon among young people that you do among, among older people. Uh, don't tax me, but tax the guy over there. Don't cut my program, but cut his or hers. Um, uh, you know, but I, I think really one of the reasons why that program is so important is because it teaches young people um, why the debt and the deficit are so critical. Steve. Yeah. So, so, so following up on that. So, I mean, is that, is that good news or bad news, Tom? I mean, you, you sort of point <laughs> out that the students are conflicted the same way politicians are. Does that speak well, well for the future? <laughs> I, I, I want to be optimistic. I think my students are, are um, uh, idealistic. They really want to do what's right for the country. Um, I think they're genuinely committed to that. And uh, I'm, you know, I, working with, with college students is, is really invigorating because it gives you some faith in the future. So I, I want to put a positive spin on that. Well, that's a good place to end it. I want to thank our guest this week, Tom Kahn, Professor of Budget Policy at American University, and Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center. Uh, and thanks, too, to Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson for their insights this week. That's all the time we have. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tune in next week for another edition of Facing the Future. 